Welcome. The parish is a church community in Alpharetta, Georgia, practicing the way of Jesus for the sake of others. Talks like these are just one part of how we gather to be deeply reshaped by Jesus. So we invite you to join us any Sunday morning for a full church gathering. You can find more information or contact us by visiting our website at parishanglican.org. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. Thank you, Luke. All right. Well, Luke and Laura are going to return to their seats, and as they do so, we will uh, transition uh, into our sermon for this morning. This is the first week after the Epiphany, and I want to begin there by just locating ourselves in the story. As you know, as a church, we follow the Christian calendar, which is slightly different than the cultural calendar, and it begins with the season of Advent. And so we started in late November with the Advent season, where we anticipate and await the arrival of Jesus coming to us at Christmas. And then Christmas comes, Jesus, the word of God, takes on flesh and dwells among us. And that begins the 12 days of Christmas, which is not merely a strange song, but actually a whole thing. It's a season that we participate in as a church. And one of the things that happens in our culture is that Christmas has become a time full of childlikeness, full of gifts, full of laughter, full of play, full of family it can be easy to forget that Christmas also brings with it consequences. There are significant consequences of taking seriously that God himself was born among us. 
And so one of the consequences actually plays out during the 12 days of Christmas. There is a lesser known feast that perhaps you're familiar with, perhaps not, called the Feast of the Holy Innocents. It's on December 28th each year. And the Feast of the Holy Innocents is a time to remember the genocide of the baby boys born uh, around the time of Jesus' birth who were slaughtered by Herod in order to protect his power. And it's not in the lectionary text this morning, but what Luke just read ends with a sense of foreboding that the wise men are told to go home a different way. And Herod reacts to that by slaughtering the babies born throughout that region. And, uh, and so that is one of the consequences of Christmas that plays out heavy in the themes that we'll look at today. After the 12 days of Christmas, comes Epiphany. And Wednesday of this past week, among many other things, was Epiphany, which had a rich irony to it. Um, Epiphany, as we said, the manifestation or revelation of God being born. Now, last week, we started our look at this theme by exploring John 1. And we looked at the birth narrative, as it were, of John's gospel, where the word of God, the logos of God, takes on flesh and moves into our neighborhood. And then today we'll look at the more classic birth narrative, which is what we read every year at the first uh, week of the Epiphany, which is Matthew's birth narrative of Jesus being born and the Magi coming to visit them. All right, so you may know the story. We'll spend a few minutes reflecting on it. But we have these wise men. They see the star and they follow it from the east. The word in Greek is magi. Every other place it's translated in the Bible, it's translated as the word magician. So we actually today have a story about magicians, which is pretty great. Um, And uh, so the magi follow the star. Now, there's a lot of lore around these fellows. Uh, you know, the song We Three Kings, which we all are familiar with. But what we actually know about them is far less than what culture has told us. We don't know their names. We actually don't know that they're kings. In fact, they're probably not kings. They are wise men. And we also don't know how many of them there are. We know there's at least three, but perhaps far more. However, having said that, there are three kings in this story today. It's just not those guys. And so we're going to reflect on this story through the lens of three kings. And the first one isn't referenced in the text at all, but is echoed in the shadows and subtext of our story today. And that is the king Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And if you recall in the biblical story, at the very, very beginning of the story, we have the Exodus. And the Exodus comes because a new king enters the scene and he takes a survey of the area around him and he realizes that there are far more of God's people than there are of his people and he gets nervous. He wants to protect his power. And so he enslaves the people of Israel and they struggle and suffer under the burden of slavery. And in that burden, they cry out to God and God hears their cries. Now, what does that have to do with epiphany? Well, what did God do in response to their cries? He sent a deliverer. The deliverer was Moses. He raises up Moses. And one of the things that Matthew is doing, and and I want to share this from the angle of, of helping us become biblically literate and theologically rich in our understanding. Matthew is at pains to set Jesus up to be the new Moses. So as Moses was risen up 
in the Exodus to become a deliverer to his people. So Jesus is being lifted up in Matthew's gospel to be the deliverer of all of the people, right? Moses is an outsider who is, uh, who takes on the identity of God's people in order to deliver them. In the same way, Jesus as an outsider incarnates into the world in order to deliver all of us. In Exodus 2, Moses as a baby is sent down a river in a basket in order to escape the slaughter of babies happening all around in his time. And then in Matthew 2, Jesus is sent to a place where there is no room for him in order uh, to escape uh, the babies being slaughtered in his time. Moses gives the people five books, the Pentateuch. Jesus in Matthew's gospel is set up to give five sermons, the most famous of which is the Sermon on the Mount. In Moses' in Moses's day, Exodus 4.19, Moses hears that you can return to Egypt for all who sought your life are dead. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus' father is told to go back to Israel for all who sought your child's life are dead. So there is parallel after parallel. And again, the point of this is that Matthew is setting up a theme that will pay off just a few chapters later. The payoff comes at Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, which is the most famous of Jesus' sermons. He stands up and says, you have heard it said by Moses, but I say to you something new. And this is the moment where Jesus, the epiphany, no longer mirrors, merely mirrors Moses' story, but actually surpasses Moses as the ultimate lawgiver, the ultimate teacher, the ultimate bringer of life and deliverance and rescue. And he says, a new law I give you, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. And so there's a lot happening in the text here. Uh, we heard it in John last week that the law comes through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. We'll dig into that theme even deeper, that Jesus is being set up as the ultimate revelation of all that God has to say. You've heard me say that before. I keep hammering on it because it's so important to our theology. We'll look at it even deeper when we get to the week of the transfiguration in a few weeks. But for now, suffice it to say that we think about the first king, Pharaoh, and we recall that God hears the cries of his people and he sends a deliverer. And that points us to Jesus, Jesus coming through the text, even of the Old Testament, as the one who is the bright star in an otherwise primitive pagan sky. And he shines that we may find our way home. And that's the first king. The second king, more evidently and on the nose in the text today, is the king Herod the Great. We all uh, know that Herod ruled at the time of the birth of Jesus. And Herod, there's been a lot of modern scholarship on Herod, and he was a really conflicted individual. He was known as a great builder and a successful uh, leader, and yet he was vicious, bloodthirsty, and paranoid. In fact, recent scholarship suggests that likely Herod the Great suffered from a personality disorder, a paranoid personality disorder. He killed his own family members. He did great lengths in order to preserve his own power. And so we don't have much historical record of the slaughter of the holy innocents, but it certainly wouldn't be outside of the realm of the kind of thing Herod the Great would do in order to protect his power. So I want you to imagine now that in the text, we have a powerful king who is terrified of losing that power 
and enter into the scene wise men who say to him, we want to know where we can find the new king. Can you imagine as a paranoid leader how that would strike you? You'd be terrified. The new what? Like, where, where am I going to, like, what are, what are you talking about? The new king. And so uh, desperate to protect his crown and control everything that comes with it, Herod has a, a, an epiphany of another sort. Epiphany comes to him like a terror in the night. Like, what do I do in response to this news that there is a new king? Because Herod was the one the wise men worshipped. Herod was the one in power. Herod was the one in control. And in an instant, he knows his time is up. What do you do in response to that? And so you can sense the panic in the text to Herod. The nativity is no moment of pageantry. This is a moment of crossroads, and it feels like there's cliffs on both sides. Because I either follow the way of Jesus, which is the epiphany that comes with consequences, or I try to protect my power. Will I lay down my title and join the circle of worship, or will I protect my power and circle the wagons instead? The first two kings in our story teach us that there is a way to try to hold power, but it ends up costing so much. And so Herod devises his plan and his strategy. He knows what he's going to do. He calls the Magi in to set up themselves to be pawns in his power struggle. And at first it plays out kind of like PR. Like, hey, let's just, uh, you know, pull it in here. Tell me where this baby is. And, and, and when you find the baby, let me know so that I can go worship him also. Right? Let's use the language of worship, but ultimately it is for the sake of protecting my power, but then it starts to spiral out of control for Herod and he doubles down and he orders the slaughter of the children in order to protect his throne. As it turns out, Herod's palace where this scene plays out is only five short miles away from the manger scene at Bethlehem. He is so close and so far from Epiphany. And I want to borrow for a minute from our friend and former pastor, Eddie, who did a phenomenal sermon on this text a few years ago. And he shares that it is not quite right to say that Herod missed the epiphany. Instead, Herod runs from his epiphany because the consequences are too great. Intuitively, Herod knows that the only thing more dangerous than having an epiphany is missing, uh, or sorry, the only thing more dangerous than missing the epiphany is having. Having a revelation of all that God is brings with it consequences. And so the Magi march out on Herod's command and they spot the star again. This time it leads them down those five miles to Bethlehem. And perhaps it is when the star stops moving and shines over the manger, or perhaps it is somewhere along the way, it hits the Magi epiphany. A revelation comes to them, and the revelation is this, that it was not in the halls of power or politics or prestige that God showed up. They just assumed that it would be at the palace that God would enter. They just assumed that's where the new king would arrive. And it hits them that this God, this newborn king has snuck in through the unlikeliest of doors. God often sneaks in through the unlikeliest of doors and he reveals himself not in the high palaces, but in the low places. Alan Bozak says that like the Magi, we too in our own journey first 
must go through the palace of Herod. And we look for what we assume will deliver us in profit, in power, in pride, in popularity, or in just a little bit more of a put-together life. That's what I need, just a little bit more. Just that one thing to fall into place. And then after we find it does not satisfy, and we bet behind those doors still too is corruption, is injustice, is fear, is self-preservation. Only then are we able to find ourselves knocking on the door of the newborn king and realizing that this is the third king. He is the king of another way. The king of another way, Christ, the baby. The Magi knock on the doors of the house where Jesus is and they offer him gifts. Offering gifts of worship is the appropriate response to the king, but it is only the first step because true worship will always lead to repentance. It will lead to a change of heart. And so we shouldn't be surprised then that the story ends with the words that Luke read for us, that the Magi go home by another way. Because once you see the upside down kingdom of God, it changes you. And you can't go back to those powers, uh, powerful palaces. Again, the first two kings are so desperate to preserve their life that they will kill babies for it. The third king comes as a baby, powerless, in order to reveal another way. It is the other way that our world and our culture and our country are desperate for right now. It is the way of self-sacrificial, nonviolent, servant-hearted love that is born in proximity to what is loved for the sake of that thing. This king of another way. Uh, have you ever wondered, and we'll end with this, why it's only the magi that see the star? Right? Like if there is this blazing star in the sky, why is it that not everyone sees it? And I wonder if it is the same for us today, that the epiphany is always right there waiting to be seen, but only if we are willing to have the eyes to see it. Because having the eyes to see it means that there will be consequences of repentance in our lives. And so it could be that the story we get here with the Magi is less a story of astrology or astronomy and more a story of awakening. Awakening to that which is always all around us, Christ in everything, and the surrender of that to follow another way. Awakening to Christ at work where he is often not in the high places, but as we said last week, in the darkness in the dingy, dim manger scene. He is in the messy and the malformed God coming to us disguised as our life through the mundane moments of life. Alan, or Anna Olenoff puts it this way. She says, the Christ still today is born in the stable, but now the stable looks like a counselor's room or a pastor's office or a coffee shop or a prayer closet. Christ is born in the muck of an obsessive complex, in a dogging anxiety, in the pain of realizing how much our hate and passivity have detoured us. And so in the darkness today, I want to end with this. Where are you looking for God in the high places of just a little bit more of a put-together life? Starting this year with just that one thing that will make it all better.
a bit more control, a bit more power, a bit more accomplishment in order to earn the verdict that you are enough. And instead, what might it look like to pursue another way? Have you felt the gentle yet persistent whisper of the Holy Spirit inviting you into another way this year? Is there some obedience you have been putting off and you know it and it's time to follow? Jesus is always calling us into the other way. We started this uh, morning with the reading from Isaiah 60 that nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Today, what might it look like for you to lay down your crown of control and take another step into the brightness of the dawn of the epiphany of the God who says, there is another way, follow me. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you trusting that you are the bright star that shines and yet that shining is so subtle that it is easy to miss it. Open up our eyes to see you. Open up our eyes to the way of this third king, so different than the way we all assume it has to work, that we can so easily miss it. Draw us after your way and let us become people shaped like the Magi from this day forward to walk different than how we did before because we have seen the epiphany. We trust you. We love you. We want to be shaped into your image. Help us toward that. Grace us toward it. In the name of Jesus. Amen.